<clears throat> now, you may not believe this. That is not just a comedy sketch from Australia. It is, in fact, supported by social science. It is backed by real deal scientific research that people who make self-consciously environmental decisions can end up being sociopaths. <laughs> or at least jerks. This is from the journal Transportation Research, 2007. I know like you, I eagerly await the day when the mailman brings the latest issue of Transportation Research to my mailbox. This involved a study that uh, talked to early adopters of hybrid vehicles in Southern California. I talked to a couple, Ron and Jill Graham, who spoke readily about the meanings they ascribe to their hybrids. They say their two Priuses are symbols. They claim that their vehicles make a statement to others. In fact, Ron and Jill are critical of visually less distinctives. High, uh, hybrid vehicles like the Honda Civic Hybrid that they feel do not communicate meaning as effectively as the Prius. I'll leave you to see figure four, which illustrates the semiotic map for the Grams and their hybrids. But what the researcher concludes is that their hybrid purchases were about constructing and communicating through a widely recognized environmental symbol that they are Intelligent, moral people who care about others. But, if this other research is accurate, in fact, that may not be the case. This from the journal Psychological Science, March of 2010. These researchers at the University of Toronto discovered that people act less altruistically and are more likely to lie, cheat, and steal after purchasing green products than after purchasing conventional products. I am dead serious. They took students at the University of Toronto. So these are Canadians. These are the nicest people you could imagine. They had one group of them, uh, one group of them had the opportunity to purchase green products. The other purchased conventional products. And then they did a separate experiment where they tested whether they were likely to lie, cheat, and steal. And it was the one who purchased the, the, the group who purchased the green products that was more likely to. Why? The researchers thought that the purchase of these green products created what they called a halo effect, where people think themselves more virtuous for having made a green choice, and that seems to enable them to feel liberated. I'm sure this is entirely subconscious, but enables them to feel liberated to make all kinds of morally disastrous choices elsewhere. Now, in part, I think it is in response to the sanctimonious piety of some Prius drivers that people drive things like Hummers. 
and do the kinds of things that you see the Hummer driver on the cover of your bulletin doing, which also makes a certain type of statement. And unfortunately, when it comes to thinking about the environment, about the created order that God has given us, it is very easy, especially in the culture that we're in, to fall into the Prius category or to the Hummer category, to say, well, the most important thing is to save the planet, and so all other concerns take second place, or to say, look, it's all going to get burned up anyway, so caring about the environment is like polishing the brass on the Titanic. Neither of these is the kind of perspective that Scripture gives us. And so what we have here, at this point in Romans chapter 8, is Paul offering us a better way to think about creation. And he does that by offering us a better, fuller perspective. This is Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18. Paul says, I reckon that the sufferings of this present age aren't even worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed in us. For creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own will, of course, but by the will of the one who subjected it. Bless you, that's God. In hope that creation itself may also be liberated from bondage to decay unto the glorious freedom of the children of God. Paul really is talking about creation. This is not just sort of some text that I'm twisting to give some environmental message here. I think this really is what Paul is talking about. He's doing that because he's giving us a bigger picture. Let's go back then, as we so often do, to chapter 1 of Genesis. This is the creation story. We read that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. He called the light day, the darkness he called night. There was evening, there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it, and it was so. God called the expanse sky. There was evening, there was morning the second day. God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear, and it was so. God called the dry ground land. The gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. 
The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. Let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light and the lesser to the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Increase in number and fill the water in the seas. Let the birds increase on the earth. There was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. So what do we notice here? What do we notice in these first 25 chapters of Genesis, this creation story? What do we notice here? There's a lot of good. Yeah, this is all good. What else do we notice? What's this goodness like? There's a lot of living stuff, yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I noticed is that there's a lot of order, right? God is separating this from that. God has things set up to be governed, set up to be organized. But at the same time, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of order with the living stuff. It's teeming. It's just breeding like bunnies. Not just the bunnies. Everything else was breeding like bunnies. You've got the, the plants spreading all over, the, all over the, the earth. You have this abundance, but it's this abundance that is untrammeled. You have this fertility that is filling the earth. And so what we find next is God ensuring that there will be order there as well. God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So here, God is not himself placing a structure of order over this. God has created humanity to be his partners in the process of working out the goodness of creation. Right? He has made humanity in his own image. 
And so we are to rule. We are to exercise dominion. We are to be stewards of that which God has made. And, if we read on in verse 29, God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. What, what do we see from these verses? Everybody's a veg, right? Not just us. Everybody. The lions and the tigers and the bears, oh my, they're all veggies too. Everybody's a veg. This is not a place where, I guess if you're a plant, this may seem like a violent kind of environment. <clears throat> but for those sentient beings, this is not nature red in tooth and claw. This is a place where God has provided abundantly for all of his creatures, all the living things that he's made. This is a place where there is peace place where there is abundance. It's a good place to be that God has made. But it is a place that needs managing. We skip ahead to chapter 2 and verse 15. Yahweh God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And then we read in 19 that Yahweh God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field, all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field. You have all of creation basically being brought under the rule, the governance, the dominion of human beings, acting as God's partners in this. Why would God need to, or why would man need to work and take care of a perfect situation? God's put them in the garden. There's plenty of abundance, prosperity, fertility. Why, why do you need to work it? Why would it need to be tended? Processes need tending. Say a little more about that. Mm-hmm. Right? Right? What else? Why else might this need to be tended? To organize it, right? Yeah, to, to, to place order on what is a disordered or chaotic situation. Nothing wrong with stuff teeming all over the place, but if you want to have a garden instead of a weed patch, you have to do some cultivating, right? You have to do some tending. Right? If you want to enjoy the fruits of these trees, Right? The apples aren't going to sort of all fall into baskets and go into cold storage on their own. You need to do some work to do that. The, the mint is going to take over everything if you don't cut it back. Right? And this is my, uh, my colleague, Nina Beth Carden, who's a rabbi here in the area and uh, the chair of the Chesapeake Covenant community. She, she describes it this way. She wrote this great article in the Baltimore Sun a couple weeks ago. I'd commend the whole thing to you. But she said, here is the story of the Garden of Eden here, humanity is presented not as a vulnerable creature struggling against a vast expanse of all-consuming wildness, but as a partner with God, called into being so that we may tend to the care and improvement of 
a needy world. God sets up the world to need governing, to need tending, to need ruling. And he creates people to do that. But, as we know, this ends up going awry. Because of human sin, what was once blessed falls under the curse. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, God says to the woman, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. You get the sense that it would have been somewhat painful, but now it's going to be really painful. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. The dominion that humanity is supposed to be exercising over the created order is now something that we seek to impose on one another. And to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Again, Adam had work to do in the garden, but the idea was that it wasn't painful, back-breaking work. But now, through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You'll eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Here you have an, an adversarial relationship being described. We have to scratch out a living from this earth that once naturally simply gave us what we needed. Now we're fighting against the created order. And, perhaps most shockingly, in verse 21, Yahweh God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Among the first results of the fall, of course, was the rise of the fashion industry. When Adam and Eve tried to sew the fig leaves for themselves, but now God makes garments of skin. How do you get garments of skin? What? You have to take them from an animal, which is not likely to let you do that unless you've killed it. So here you have the first shedding of blood as a result of human sin, the first time that things are not as they had been set up to be, that things are not good because God didn't create these animals initially to be killed. But now they are. And so you get this picture of all of creation being under the curse. You, you have a sense in which the the peace, the harmony of the original created order is now broken. And now you do get nature red in tooth and claw. You do get entropy. You get things falling apart. I think this may be the kind of thing Paul is alluding to when he talks about creation being in bondage to decay. Because it is. Think about just about anything. If you leave it alone, what's going to happen to it? It's going to fall apart. Whether it's a garden that isn't tended, whether it's a 
piece of equipment or machinery, whether it's a marriage, if you don't tend it, it's going to fall apart. In fact, the prophets describe this kind of phenomenon. Isaiah, in chapter 27, he says, In that day, sing about a fruitful vineyard. I, Yahweh, watch over it. I water it continually, guard it day and night, so that no one may harm it. This is God talking about caring for that which is his treasured possession, his people and the place where he's put them. He said, you know, I'm not angry. I mean, if there were briars and thorns confronting me, then I could march against them in battle. I'd set them all on fire. Or else, let them come to me for refuge. Let them make peace with me. Yeah, let them make peace with me. Those plants that create briars and thorns, I guess initially they had a more harmonious relationship to the environment around them. So you can get on board and be God's friend, or you can be God's enemy. That's the message we get over and over, and I guess that applies to the plants too. In days to come, God says, Jacob will take root, Israel will bud and blossom and fill all the world with fruit. This is the original picture, right? As Yahweh struck her, as he struck down those who struck her, has she been killed as those who were killed who killed her? By warfare and exile, you contend with her. With his fierce blast, he drives her out as on a day the east wind blows. By this, then, will Jacob's guilt be atoned for, and this will be the full fruitage of the removal of his sin when he makes all the altar stones to be like chalk stones crushed to pieces. No ash or poles or incense altars will be left standing. These are the symbols of of idolatry of the worship of the false gods and the nations around them, including nature gods. The fortified city stands desolate, an abandoned settlement forsaken like the desert. There the calves graze, there they lie down, they strip its branches bare. Calves grazing in a deserted, fortified city. What, what kind of animal are calves? Other than delicious, yes, cows, right? Uh, they're domestic, right? So if you have domestic animals wandering through a deserted city, things have gone pretty bad, right? I mean, you know, the livestock, especially cows, would have been very valuable if somebody had left his flock behind rather than eating or selling it, then that person would have been displaced very quickly. This is a place where things that were once ordered, what's described here in Isaiah, things that were once ordered, things that were once uh, fruitful, have been laid waste. You get the same thing a few chapters later in, in chapter 32. In a little more than a year, you who feel secure will tremble. The grape harvest will fail. The harvest of fruit will not come. So tremble, you complacent women. Shudder, you daughters who feel secure. Strip off your clothes. Put sackcloth around your waists. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vines, and for the land of my people. A land now overgrown with thorns and briars. Yes, mourn for all houses of merriment, for the city of revelry. The fortress will be abandoned. The noisy city deserted. Citadel and watchtower will become a wasteland forever the delight of donkeys, a pasture for flocks. That which was once ordered and well-established and well-governed is now 
fallen apart. That is generally the kind of association that we find in Scripture for wilderness. Wilderness is not something that is particularly praised in the Scriptures. Wilderness means that humanity is not governing as it ought to. We have this picture in Exodus. God, as he's telling his people about what's going to happen when he leads them into the land, he says, I'm going to send my terror ahead of you. I'm going to throw into confusion every nation you encounter. I'll make all your enemies turn their backs and run. I'll send the hornet ahead of you to drive the Hivites, Canaanites, and Hittites out of your way, but I won't drive them out in a single year if I did that. The land would become desolate. The wild animals, too numerous for you. Even though these people are my enemies, even though they engage in all kinds of abominable practices, they are still humans and they still have a responsibility to govern the created order. Even if they're doing a lousy job of it, it's better that they be there doing that than that I kick them all out immediately and leave you to try to conquer wilderness. I won't drive them out in a single year. The land would become desolate. The wild animals too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you've increased enough to take possession of the land. I guess the wild animals don't like to self-deport either. This is something that God is going to do, again, in an orderly fashion. But I should note that even though wilderness, in the sense of things being wild and ungoverned, is not given a positive spin in Scripture, beauty is. You have passage after passage, especially in the Psalms and and in the, in the prophets of the, the beauty of various places that God has created. So I don't want to give the sense that everything is simply to be utilized and placed into production. There are things that are to be admired, things that are to be enjoyed. That's the way God's made them. Our mandate, then, is not to domination in a sense of exploitation of the resources that God has given us to use things and to discard them. Our mandate is to cultivation. Our mandate is to wise stewardship. The Lord, earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the psalmist says. So it's not our property, it's not our resources, they're God's. We are given the privilege, and we're given the job of taking care of them, of cultivating, managing, stewarding. Look at Psalm 104. It just paints such a beautiful picture of this. Praise the Lord, O my soul, O Lord, my God. You're very great. You're clothed with splendor and majesty. He wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent, lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot rides on the wings of the, of the wind. He makes winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. He set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. He covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains, but at your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. They flowed over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place you assigned for them. This is a poetic retelling of the creation story. You set a boundary they can't cross. Never again will they cover the earth. He makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the air nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle, 
plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine to gladden the hearts of man, unless you're Baptist, oil to make his face shine, bread that sustains his heart. Wine, oil, bread, how do you get those? Other than going to Trader Joe's and buying them. How do you get wine, oil, bread? How do you get those? You, you cultivate the things that go into them, and then you treat those things. You get wine by not only cultivating the grapes, but by then crushing and for straining and fermenting them. You get oil. The olive trees don't just have little bottles hanging off of them. Right? You have to harvest the oil at the right time and press, or harvest the olives, press the olives, get the oil. You, bread, you have to grow the, the grains, and then you have to, to grind them to get flour, and then you bake them. There's, there's work to do. There's human creativity involved. And all of this God provides. And God provides, and, and the, the psalmist goes on to show all the things that God provides for all of the creatures he's made, but the things that we enjoy mostly are things that we enjoy through cultivation. So our mandate is to cultivation, to stewardship. And sometimes that involves taking things that are productive and resting them. You, you get this in the, the laws that govern agriculture that God gives his people in Torah. You, you do crop rotation. You let fields lie fallow. You let them have their rest so that the nutrients can accumulate in the soil so that they will be productive. If you just farm thing, the same land over and over and over, it is not ultimately going to work unless you're throwing tons of extra stuff on there. God designed this whole thing, it seems, to be tended well, sometimes with production, sometimes with rest. And I want to emphasize that this commission that God gave Adam, this mandate to rule, to exercise dominion, to be a steward, to cultivate. This is not something that went away after the fall. This is still a human responsibility. It's just harder now because of the curse. It's harder now because of the adversarial relationship that has developed between us and this created order that God has made. Human rebellion has a host of unintended consequences. But this is not, remember, the end of the story. Paul says that all creation is waiting in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. And we have pictures of what this might look like. Again, I'll go to Isaiah in chapter 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of Yahweh will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. And he will delight in the fear of Yahweh. He won't judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, faithfulness, the sash around his waist. And when this coming king is ruling, the wolf will live with the lamb. 
The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. Right now, if you have a leopard and a goat lying down together, you're going to need to replace the goat on a regular basis. But the cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra. The young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They'll neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain because the earth will be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. And in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his place of rest will be glorious. In that day, Yahweh will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people. He'll raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He'll assemble the scattered peoples of Judah from the four corners of the earth. God's going to work out peace and harmony. He is going to sort out that which we have messed up. And we get another picture of this in Revelation. At the very end, chapter 22, John has this vision where the angel shows him the river of the water of life, clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. This is the new heavens and the new earth. These On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, each yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. And no longer will there be any curse. This is the vision of the reversal of the curse that our sin brought about. This is when God fixes all of it. And so in light of this, we have the responsibility, if we are going to learn from Paul, to recognize that the creation has been subjected to frustration by the will of the one who subjected it. I think that's, Paul is specifically referring there to God saying, cursed is the ground because of you. And we have a clear testimony from Scripture that that curse is not going to be reversed until the day when God sets all things to right. So any expectations we have about what we can accomplish have to be tempered by that awareness. We have to maintain the proper perspective and realize that there is only so much heaven on earth that we are going to see. Because we do live at a time where we are under the curse. But we live at a time where the beginnings of the reversal of that curse can begin to be seen. We do pray your will be done on earth as in heaven. We see signs of the inbreaking of the kingdom. And I will close with the way that N.T. Wright comments on this passage because I couldn't possibly put it any better. He says, Christians must be in the forefront of bringing in the present time signs and foretastes of God's eventual full healing to bear on the created order in all its parts and in every level. If the world is to be put to rights, brought under the saving lordship of God's restorative justice, and if that work has already been unveiled prototypically in Jesus' death and resurrection, then it will not do 
to concentrate on individual justification while allowing wider issues of justice to go unaddressed. Christians must be in the forefront of bringing in the present time signs and foretastes of God's healing justice to bear upon the world that is still full of corruption, injustice, oppression, division, suspicion, fashion, and war. And if the world is to attain its full beauty and dignity as God's liberated new creation, a beauty and dignity for which the present evidences of God's grandeur within creation are just a foretaste, then it will not do to regard beauty and its creation and conservation as a pleasant but irrelevant optional extra within a world manipulated by science, exploited by technology, and bought and sold in the economic marketplace. Christians must be in the forefront of bringing in the present time signs and foretastes of God's fresh beauty to birth within the world, signs of hope for what the Spirit will yet do. Will you pray with me? Lord, we pray that we would be people who look at the good world you have given us from the proper perspective. We pray that we would neither run roughshod over the good gifts of your creation, nor worship them instead of you. Pray that we would be faithful stewards, that you would give us the wisdom to see where we should cultivate for production and where we should cultivate for rest, for restoration, for renewal. Give us eyes to see the beauty of the creation you have given us, but to then see them as cause to worship you and not them. Pray that we would be people who, when we do make good choices, when we do things that honor you, the world you've made, that that would not then become license for us to feel smug, that that would not make us feel free to sin elsewhere because we've done something good. But we pray that those good things we do would be a part of what you are working out in your people part of the furthering of your kingdom, the further incursion of your kingdom to enemy territory. Pray that we would be your faithful stewards, that we would fulfill the responsibility you've given us as human beings to exercise dominion with wisdom and care, and above all, with gratitude to you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.